It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Hello, listeners, and welcome once again to Hard Hats and High Viz, a coverage of all things Australian, particularly in the political world. And joining me as usual is Hong Kong Jack all the way in Hong Kong. How are you, mate? Hot and sweaty, but apart from that, I'm fine. Nice and warm there today. Oh, yes. I see you've got the black gear on, mate. You do know that <laughs> You do know that absorbs uh, heat, don't you? Absorbs yeah, light yeah, and no, heat. Well, I've, got, I've got the air con on in here, so it's okay. Yeah. All right. Now, look, we touched on this last week. For our listeners, what had come, what had come out uh, uh, the, the, on that previous weekend uh, is that uh, Scott Morrison had uh, had secretly become the health minister with the health minister's uh, knowledge and approval, it would seem, and also the finance minister, uh, Matthias Corman, who was the finance minister, didn't have a clue, uh, and that was where we stood. And we had a bit of a we had a bit of a chat about that, and we kind of knew that was there was more coming. Uh, and in fact, the Prime Minister had requested further details, and it turned out, Jack, that uh, uh, Scott Morrison was secretly five ministers, a quarter of the cabinet, almost. And, and we thought it was bizarre when we were talking about it, and it is bizarre. <laughs> Just two was two was bizarre. <laughs> a five, yeah. So uh, what we had was uh, he was secretly appointed um, uh, health minister on March fourteen. Uh, two weeks later. Uh, 16 days later, he, he, he became finance minister, and we knew that last week when we went to uh, went to air. And then a year later, more than a year later, he um, he became, April, on April 15, 2021, he secretly became the Minister for Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. And then uh, on May 6, he became secretly the Minister for the Treasury and the Home Affairs, uh, Home Affairs Ministries, and all with the Governor-General's permission. Now, these were not, uh, obviously, not uh, ceremonial swearing-ins, Jack, but, they were, but he was sworn in nevertheless. Can you just walk me through that procedure, how he was sworn in? That we really don't know for sure. We don't know whether it was done in person or whether um, the Governor-General just signed off on it. We have seen documents from uh, Yarralumla indicating, in fact, all five that he had signed off on them. But clearly there was no uh, ceremonies, no media snapping photographs while Scott Morrison signed himself no. into these five ministries at Yarralumla. No pulling the family, the ancient family Bible out and having it <laughs> photographed or anything like that. No, no nothing like that. Uh, but but it was done on administrative terms and it was done according to legal advice provided by the then Attorney General Christian Porter. Well, the first the first one was done on legal advice provided by the Attorney General Christian Porter. That is the health ministry, double ministry, if you like. Um, but we don't know that... Uh, Christian Porter or the Attorney-General's office provided any advice on any of the other uh, uh, swearing-ins. I uh, see. Okay, so... And, and, and indeed, even with the first one, we don't know whether the Attorney-General's department 
um, were a party to the advice that Christian Porter gave, or whether that was just advice from Christian Porter himself. Okay. Normally speaking, an advice from the Attorney General would go through the department and come up uh, and be filtered and cross-checked, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we don't know whether that happened or not. We do know, as we go to air on Monday, the twenty-second of August, that um, that uh, Anthony Albanese is awaiting the advice of the Solicitor General in regard to these uh, five secret appointments. Uh, it would seem now, in breaking news, that he has received that, and that advice will be uh, will be published tomorrow or made public tomorrow. Is there any suggestion of illegality? Oh, I don't think there will be. No. Okay. We have to look at the role of David Hurley, the Governor-General, Jack, and look, we do know the Convention dictates, as we saw in 1975, or as we saw a breach of in 1975, um, uh, with the constitutional crisis there, that it is a requirement of the Governor-General, the Head of State, to, to accept the advice of the Government of the day. And to act on that advice, that's correct. Yeah. That's right. But he's not just a rubber stamp, is he? No. No, it's not. Well, he can be a rubber stamp. Um, and, and that's a question that uh, I think probably our best Governor-General turned his mind to. And, and he says that the dump, this is Paul Haslack. So Paul Haslack, Governor-General from, I'm going to say, 1969 to uh, about 1974, Jack. Yeah. Uh, and a former uh, foreign minister for Australia uh, and long-term parliamentarian held held a number of ministries in uh, the Menzies government, the Holt government, and uh, the McMahon. Minister for External government. Affairs, as it was then known, um, mm. uh, he was uh, most most famously. But he was also a minister for territories, looked after Papua New Guinea and um, all those sort of places as well. Um, uh, he, he his his view was that. And he's one of, one of Australia's best political writers. Ever get hold of his pen portraits of his parliamentary colleagues? It's well worth a read. Very funny man. Uh, he went on. He said that the Governor General's dominant role is one who uses his influence to ensure that there is care and deliberation, a close regard both for the requirements of the law and the conventions of the Constitution, and for the continuing interests of the whole nation. He says that the Governor-General's influence would disappear altogether if he were thought of as one who would do whatever he was told without asking the reasons why. Indeed. That seems very clear to me. <coughs> so, and so, so David Hurley, the first, what he should have done was said when the first ministry was appointed, that when, when Prime Minister was appointed Minister for Health, he, he should have said, are you sure? And every other time he said, are you really, really, really sure? Really sure? Are you <laughs> really, really sure? Yes, it would seem. Look, I, I saw uh, the Morrison uh, press conference last week. It went, uh, went for over an hour and he was asked in it uh, what conversations took place between himself and the Governor-General, David Hurley, uh, and he declined to comment. Um, uh, the Yarralumla itself has only commented in so far as to say that they weren't aware that these, um, or it's not his role to determine whether these announcements are made public or not. And he had no, he had no reason to believe. He said that they that Morrison would not tell his colleagues about this. Yes, exactly. So that's that's a, that's a far better way of putting it. Um, but when we get to the fourth and fifth signings in, and 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 presumably David Hurley had 
uh, had looked at the previous three appointments and, and, and found that none had been made public, should he have asked more than, are you really, really sure, Jack? Well, 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 we don't know exactly what was said. We don't know whether he asked any questions at all or whether they had a long conversation about it. All that's possible. Um, and you would expect a military fellow like David Hurley to have kept scrupulous notes about that because that's something the military is actually quite good at, of diarising what's actually happening as it goes along. Um, but we don't we don't know what's in those notes. That would be of interest to a lot of people, historians particularly, I should think. But I would expect the Governor-General to have a, a long conversation with the Prime Minister about something as irregular as this and say, um, I think it was Professor Rosalind Dixon from the University of New South Wales said she, he should have been asking, are these appointments really necessary? Could we wait until someone is actually sick and make provision for a, you know, for a virtual model of appointment. I'll, I'll get back to that. How, how is the arrangement me. going to work? These mm. are all the questions that the Governor-General mm. should have been asking at the time, and I agree with that. Because there is facility, isn't there, for in, in respect of when a minister is uh, unavailable due to illness or um, uh, some sort of personal uh, issue in his or her life, uh, there are there, there's available to the government uh, the provision to have... Uh, appointments made very very quickly. There is a um, there is a there's a comprehensive official set of protocols around this. It's called continuity of government, mm. and it's something you're briefed on when you when you get into power. One of the first things you're briefed on when you get into power. So there already is provision for all this. It was entirely unnecessary, so far as I can see. Yes, indeed. Can I just just take you back to what we may understand or what what we might have uh, excused Morrison of. Uh, was the sharing of the health portfolio. The Biosecurity Act, and I just uh, can't recall, I think it's Section 475 of that Act, uh, essentially um, uh, uh, once triggered, once uh, once the Governor-General had uh, had activated that on the, on the advice of the government, that it essentially meant that the Health Minister in Australia was, in fact, the most powerful figure in Australia, more yes. powerful than the Prime Minister. Yeah, and that when uh, Morrison and uh, Greg Hunt looked at Biosecurity Act, which, uh, by the way, was shuffled through the Parliament on bipartisan support in 2015, the dying days of the Abbott government, um, that that would have been uh, a reasonable step for Morrison to take um, on the health ministry alone. I'm I'm a little unconvinced about that, but mm -hmm. yes, that, that that's the most excusable thing he did. Yes, right, okay, uh, and then, but it, it, in no way. And goes to cover what what subsequently occurred in 2021 with uh, the Resources Ministry, uh, with uh, the Treasury, the uh, Finance Minister, and, and the Finance Minister earlier, but uh, uh, and Home Affairs. I mean, these are the key portfolios in government, aren't they? Yes, and all of those ministers have discretionary that, powers. Mm. Discretionary powers that they can deal with that that the minister doesn't have to take back to cabinet, and that they can and that they are required to make decisions on. Some of those, of course, are actually delegated. So, just about every visa decision is a decision of the minister, but they are in, in practice done by a, a public servant who has a delegation from the minister to make that decision. So, but the, but they all have important things they have to decide. So. The, the, the Treasurer gets to decide whether um, something complies with the Foreign Investment Board review. Yes, has uh, complete, complete discretion. 
on the advice of Treasury in regard to foreign investments and can actually override the Foreign Investment Review Board. Um, Yes. In in immigration, Jack, in home affairs, home affairs or immigration is a significant part of the home affairs portfolio, might I suggest that there are some problems looming uh, in regard to uh, what discretion might have been uh, might have been provided in regard to certain cases? Um, we we looked at uh, the Balola uh, family, the Sri Lankan family uh, that were ultimately granted resident status in Australia uh, with the arrival of the new government, the Albanese government. But uh, those things were held up, um, and it always yeah. it always came across as strange to me because this was a potentially good news story for the government. Uh, the Morrison government, that is, but they just seemed to drag their feet with it, um, and and they they might have had a, a little bit of a Philip, a little bit of a bounce, uh, had they made uh, had 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 it been allowed, uh, or the minister had uh, discretion allowed over that particular case. I don't think there's any evidence that that Morrison appointing himself Home Home Affairs Minister had any effect on that. There may be, but it, it, it just isn't apparent yet. The, the whole story of the Bilawala uh, family has been a, um, a, a running sore for the government and it should never have been. Mm. Now, I've had you know, 25 years of sort of contact with the, the immigration ministry and, and, and having people I know working for ministers in that, you know, for, for, for both governments uh, over a long period of time. And there are always problems like the Bilawala family problems where a government doesn't want to change the rules because hard cases make bad law. If you change the rules to fix a hard case, you, you, you make the law worse. So you leave um, it to the discretion of the minister? Well, you, you find a way. And, <laughs> and I've got to say, there's been some very inventive people who've worked um, in ministerial offices over that 25 years, um, and they've come up with some quite strange schemes at times to fix the problem with a particular difficult case, to make it work, to make the problem go away. Um, and that should have been done a long, long time ago. Long time ago. Yeah. Mm. And it was suspicious to me that it wasn't uh, in the case of the Bilawala family. Uh, I mispronounced that. That's a judgment question. It was just poor judgment. It is not, entirely not ministerial discretion. Um, let me ask you another example, Jack, uh, and I don't know how well you know this, but on election day, we were all, well, many of us were lucky enough to receive a text message from the Liberal Party uh, telling us that uh, a boat had been intercepted from Sri Lanka on its way to Christmas Island, or that's it was intercepted off Christmas Island, and uh, on, this, this occurred on election day, and an announcement was made by the Prime Minister, uh, and basically a, a question that was feeded to him by, uh, or fed to him by, um, by a Channel 7 journalist, uh, when the Department of Home Affairs had not made the announcement at that time. Yeah. Do you know um, the case? I, I, I am aware of it. Uh, and I don't know that his involvement, um, him, him having been appointed as Minister for Home Affairs, had an effect on that decision. I think that was just a grubby political decision to publicise it before mm. the Home Affairs um, Department um, uh, did so. The, the, the matter was pressed by the Albanese government. The matter was investigated by the Home Affairs Department head, and, and it was very clear that pressure was coming from the Prime Minister's office upon. Uh, Karen Andrews, the, the Minister for Home Affairs, or one of the minister, Ministers for Home Affairs at the time, 
uh, and uh, that she was copping a lot of flack. It had led to some very amusing text exchanges between herself and uh, and staff and uh, and the department itself because they had, in fact, made a cursory notice of it on the Home Affairs website. Uh, the minister couldn't see it. It hadn't refreshed uh, through the website. Um, there may well be some skeletons coming here, Jack, because what we do know is that the National Security and intelligence services had no knowledge of any of this. The public service had no knowledge of this. What about the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Jack? What did yeah, they know? Yeah, but that's, that's not at all clear whether no. they gave any advice about this or whether they had knowledge of it. Oh. Um, uh, that's all a mystery. At this stage, I mean, I mean I'm, I'm sure people in the department, know they'll, they'll be checking through their files and finding out whether they were told anything. But um, the wider public, no, we don't know what happened. We don't know. We don't know what happened in the prime minister's office. We don't know what happened in the department of prime minister and cabinet. And the department of prime minister and cabinet has a legal advice section. There's a governance section. Um, uh, in the ordinary course of events, they would all make recommendations on something like this. But we don't know whether they did or they didn't. So, Jack, I'll ask you to clamber yourself into the uh, the rat's maze of Scott Morrison's brain and try and tell us what motivated him because this, we'll go on and talk about consequence in a little while, but what was motivating him? We might understand the, the, the health ministry stuff, but go, go on with the next four. What was he thinking? It's a little, it's a little hard to, 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 to find a justification, to be quite honest, Jack. Um, uh, I just can't find a reason why you'd want to do this. Well, might, might, I, might I suggest one, Jack? Bill Shorten thought he had a Masonic uh, complex. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I think that's, you know, it might be It's right. getting close. People, yeah, pe people do get a bit overexcited um, uh, when they're, when they're in a, a crisis situation like that um, and, and they can start to think that they're all Winston Churchill and um, they're standing, you know, um, uh, in protection of the entire Western world. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's, it's a worrying thing. It is, of course, a reminder. I'm, I'm, you know, people tell me I'm boring because I always bang on about the importance of cabinet government. But that's the key thing about the, the yeah. whole issue is that um, it's a... Uh, a destruction of the proper way of governing um, in a, in a, in a uh, Westminster parliamentary system, making, which is yeah, a cabinet a, government. Uh, that collaborative approach around the cabinet table. That's the lesson to take out of this for the, for the Labor, uh, Labor Party, for the Albanese government, isn't it? Well, so they could learn that lessons from a lot of places. You know, the best government of our lifetime, the, the Hawke government, was an excellent cabinet government, and that's one. That was the reason why it was the best government we've had. Um, they didn't get everything right, but you're much less likely to make a really bad decision if it's done around the cabinet table and everyone gets their say and, and a vote is taken. Um, uh, you don't do things in secret, um, and you don't. You have to be relatively open with your colleagues. Uh, might I suggest, Jack, uh, that this has been, uh, this has unified the country uh, in many ways. Um, we've got uh, even uh, very conservative commentators uh, giving uh, giving Scott Morrison a slapping, uh, and it seems to be running right across uh, the uh, uh, the political divide. 
even within the factions in, uh, in, in, on the conservative side. We had the extraordinary uh, situation of Peter Credlin and Malcolm Turnbull almost singing from the same hymn sh- wow. sheet. You know, um, wow. I, I don't think they've agreed with any, on anything since uh, oh, she was working for him. That's a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, look, uh, there, there are some names. But, but look, I, I will make a suggestion here, Jack. I would suggest um, I can understand the health ministry portfolio, given what I understand about the Biosecurity Act, and I think it's uh, Section 475 of it. But when we get into um, uh, April and May of 2021, uh, and uh, just to give our listeners some context, of course, uh, one of those things about COVID is it tends to affect your view of chronology. Uh, and But at that time, we were rolling out vaccines. Uh, vaccines were going into arms. There was a bit of a problem with supply. There were issues around one particular vaccine and its administration to younger people. But really, the crisis, I suppose, had largely passed that great period of unknown in March 2020 when the pandemic was spreading around the world. There were no vaccines. Uh, and and, uh, and people were dropping dropping off the branch left, right and centre, um, that things had very much changed then, that, that really this shows that the Prime Minister was suspicious of his colleagues, was paranoid possibly uh, of his colleagues using their ministerial discretion. I think, I think what really happened is that uh, he, he thought he had some justification for the first one, for the health ministry. I don't really agree that there is justification for right. it, even, even despite the Biosecurity Act. Um, but uh, having done that once, uh, he thought, having done it once, he saw opportunity and took it to do it on multiple other occasions. He'd become addicted to it, Jack. Yeah, he had. He had. <laughs> he and, and, and it was a... Um, uh, and it was a foolish and egregious error. Um, I don't know that it's um, – uh, well, we don't know what the consequences are because we don't know what actually what, what actually he did with it. We know he did a couple of things with it, but not very much. Um, so it seems at the moment, but that's you – know, you know, time will tell. Well, it is time to talk about consequences, Jack, and then we might speculate a little bit because the political consequences – are damning for the, for the Liberal Party, um, and we're not talking about the coalition. The National Party is said to be very, very upset about this. Bridget McKenzie and David Littleproud have been uh, excoriating of the uh, of the of the former Prime Minister. A, a good deal of the Liberal Party are very upset about. Oh, this absolutely. As well. uh, we've seen Karen Andrews calling for him to resign one day, and then after receiving her long-awaited apology, <laughs> continued with that line. It's, it's said that Josh Frydenberg is incandescent with rage. <laughs> yes, I, I heard, I heard um, yes, he was just about to explode when he found out, and he only found out last week, like the rest of us, um, as did Andrews. I, I have no doubt that if this had become public knowledge at any time before the election, um, there would have been a, a, an immediate challenge of... Uh, of the Prime Minister's leadership of the Liberal Party, and he would have lost. Uh, indeed. Now, I think that's one consequence we can sort of speculate on quite comfortably. But going forward, and we talked about this last week, the problem for the Liberal Party is they don't want a by-election in Cook. And they don't want a by-election in Cook because uh, they, they, they'd probably comfortably win um, 
a, a by-election, but it, it relates to state uh, consequences and that the um, a leading candidate to take over Morrison's seat is in Cook is uh, the current Attorney General in the New South Wales State Government, uh, Mark Speakman. And uh, if he decided to run in Cook, then that would mean there would be a by-election in Cronulla. Uh, and, and while the Liberals hold that very, very comfortably, there would be likely be a significant uh, swing against uh, a very shaky state uh, Perrottet government in New South Wales. Cronulla would be losable under those circumstances, I would think. It uh, would uh, need about a 25% swing. I say that on the back of the back of the beer coaster uh, estimate. I think it was a 63-38 two-party preferred at the last election. But these things ha have been known to occur in state by-elections, uh, big, big swings against... Uh, uh, when, particularly whenever they see... whenever voters see a political fix coming in. Um, and and Speakman has already... And Speakman has said that he will be a candidate in the next... Um, uh, state election. He, he, he doesn't want to have to leave the, uh, the New South Wales Party and go to the federal um, uh, sphere until um, after the until the New South Wales election takes place, which I think is in March next year. Is that right? Uh, March this year. Yes, uh, fixed term. Uh, fixed terms in uh, most states now. Certainly, in New South Wales have been for some time. Um, so yes, uh, if, if Speaking was to take up a uh, job, if uh, Morrison did walk out, as many of his uh, parliamentary colleagues have uh, requested he do, uh, then that would trigger not just one but two by-elections and uh, yep. the second one would be a, a particularly risky affair. So they've got to sit in the same room as him, Jack, for, a long, for, the, for the foreseeable <laughs> until at least yeah. March of next year. For a while. I don't think that's going to be too big a problem. Well, it's going to be a problem, but I think no, it's, it's going to be a problem. problem. Yeah. I think it's not, not, not too big a problem. I just, just, just think that the, the, well, media, well, the media stuff will move on. It's going to be very uncomfortable for Scott Morrison because he's going to be sitting with people who think you're the reason we're on the, we're on the back, we're on the, we're on the opposition benches, but you know, um, that's going to be difficult. Well, I just want to talk to you briefly about this and possibly that messianic complex, Jack, that uh, Shorten referred to. If we look at the history of Morrison becoming Prime Minister, uh, he, he ran against Dutton, uh, after a spill which saw Malcolm Turnbull toppled, uh, that was in 2018, and he took and he took over the Liberal leadership. Now, one thing that we really have to understand, and I've asked our listeners to do this, is that basically the the the, the coalition and certainly the Liberal Party did not think they could win 2019. Uh, it goes a long way to, expl to explaining a, a, a fair bit of pork barrelling through the sports rorts affair, uh, through the regional uh, development grants program, uh, and all being targeted at, uh, uh, at uh, coalition-held marginal seats. And that tells me that they were trying to save the furniture. So there was, going into the election, everyone thought that, uh, that the Morrison government was going to get rolled. And Everyone except one. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. Uh, now, we can go through why that happened. I mean, uh, Shorten had a, an expansive reform agenda and then there was Bill Shorten himself uh, that, that uh, the Australians didn't, didn't trust and didn't take in, uh, into their trust in 2019. But all of a sudden, Morrison won the, the unwinnable. And that, I'm, I, I will grant you, once we had the pandemic kick in, uh, about 10 months later, 
uh, a little bit less than that, nine months later, uh, that gave uh, Scott Morrison this view that he was the magic man and that uh, he alone understood the Australian people, that sort of form of delusion. Mm, I think that's correct. Uh, and there's going to be a big price to pay with this. Um, if you want to look back in history and find a, a comparable situation, and I, and I had spent some time over the weekend thinking about this, the nearest thing I can find is um, what's known as the loans affair. Uh, involving Rex the Strangler Connor. Yeah, Rex. Uh, who was the Minister for Energy um, uh, uh, and Resources in the Whitlam government. And uh, back in 1974, we had a, 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 pe a petrol crisis. Uh, OPEC whacked up the prices, and all of a sudden, the Middle East was awash with what were called petrodollars, the, uh, the windfall from that, those OPEC Including uh, price Iraq. increases. And the petrodollars were flying around the world uh, looking for something to invest in. And uh, Rex Connor decided that we should have a national energy grid um, and a giant big pipeline running all the way from the gas fields of the northwest uh, of Australia right across to the east coast. And all Tremendous of idea. Going, Tremendous idea of, until we got to the this, funding. Until we all got of to this the funding. Was, all of this was going to be government owned because mm. he was a, an old fashioned, um, uh, he was probably a com, to be quite honest. He was an old fashioned um, um, socialist, was, was Rex. Um, and in May 1975, after a, a whole lot of kerfuffle about this, the cabinet ruled that only the treasurer could borrow the money from, from only the treasurer could borrow money for Australia overseas. Um, Rex kept Rex wasn't what, listening. Rex wasn't listening. Well, if he listened, he didn't take any notice, put it that way. <laughs> he was still sitting in his office, sitting up all night, um, negotiating yeah. with people overseas to get the petrodollars so he could build his pipeline, etc. He was sitting up there all night waiting for the telex to start ticking with the money coming through. Yeah, yeah. Um, it yeah. was extraordinarily damaging to, uh, to it, Whitlam's uh, election hopes in 1975. But the, the, the full extent of this didn't come out until after the election in 1975, until Whitlam was defeated. Um, uh, and um, in, in a similar way as Morrison's situation has, it came out after the election and that was a big, big burden for Labor to carry and they got an even worse result in 1977. Yeah, they got belted again in 1977. And yeah. so... And it, it, took, it took a lot of work um, and... Uh, and a lot of people had to fall on their sword and disappear from politics for Labor to recover from that. And that's what I think the Liberal Party is going to face now, that um, Morrison's going to have to go, probably a couple of other people as well, um, uh, and it's going to take some time and some slow, hard rebuilding to recover from that. A crisis of integrity in government. Yep. And let me say that if uh, you were sitting in the government, government benches and uh, you wanted to have a crack at Peter Dutton, just ask him how many prime ministers he'd like to be. Uh, would he like to be three or four or five? Or would he like to uh, sit in the cabinet on his own? I mean, look, there's there's lots of fun to be had there. And yes, look, we uh, we have taken up a lot of the time, but I think you know the the, the liberals will, will sort of say, "Oh, look, there are far more important issues facing the Australian people," which is true. But don't think that you can dismiss this. And the reason you can't dismiss this is because your own party room's filthy on it. That's the problem. All right. Which that was exactly what was was the was the case in the Labor Party in the in the 1970s. There were some people who said, "Oh, Rex was okay," and there were plenty of people who were so angry about it. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. Uh, now, we are going to move on to something that the, the government has initiated, Jack, a summit, a job summit in September. And uh, I didn't know. I thought this was going to be like a Kevin Rudd summit where all are welcome. Thousands would flock and uh, with flowers in their hair and, and so forth. But only about 100 people from across the country are expected to be invited to the job summit in September. And uh, apparently Elbow's keeping the invitations pretty close to his chest. Uh, the country's major business groups will be there. Uh, Jennifer Westcott uh, from the Business Council of Australia, Chief Executive there. Uh, AI Group Chief Executive Innes Will uh, Willocks. AI Group Head of Education and Training, Megan Lilly. Uh, specific industry groups, the Australian Banking Association, and Oblige, the... Uh, CEO there, Minerals Council of Australia, National Farmers Federation, Australian Retailers Association, uh, and of course the trade union movement will be there uh, in in reasonable number. Uh, can't be too many of them if there's going to be a, only a hundred uh, in in attendance. Um, uh, this is actually, I, I think we're entitled to be a little bit cynical about summits, Jack, but um, but I think this is absolutely necessary. Um, that we do have an unemployment rate in Australia now at 3.5%, which may as well be full employment. In fact, it's it's worse than full employment um, in that we have got a particular skills shortage around the country at the moment. Do you think the job summit might lead to some better outcomes, Jack? Well, you never know with these things until they take place. Yeah, yeah that's pretty right. But, I, I mean, it's not a... It's not a naval. It doesn't seem to me to be a naval gazing exercise, does it? it? It really does seem to be. We have got some problems, structural problems, with uh, uh, with in our workforce at the moment, and we need to deal with them going forward. Well, you know, if you go back in history, look at look at uh, uh, the, the the Hawke Keating summits um, summit. They were good. Uh, and they were necessary, and, and they and they produced um, some good outcomes. Um, you look at the the, the Rudd uh, summit, and that looked like a foolish idea from the beginning. It looked like a love in fest, you know. Um, Nothing uh, wrong with love, lot. Jack. Don't, don't don't run down love. Don't, <laughs> don't run down love. But yeah, I, I, I tell you what you mean. They're, they're, we have to, you need to have specific problems in order to gather people together and and uh, come up with some workable solutions. Um, uh, at least, at least there are no actors being invited to this one. Well, we, we, I don't want to sound like we're picking on the opposition, but the National Party's going, but the Liberal Party isn't. And Peter Dutton has explained it as a sort of union fest. I mean, really, I, I just don't understand. They they they, they jumped out of the uh, out of uh, any sort of involvement uh, towards the uh, climate change legislation that went through the Parliament. Um, because they just said that they weren't going to vote, you know, they were going to vote no from it from the outset without even looking at the bill. Uh, and now they're saying they're not going to attend uh, the um, uh, the summit, even though Angus Taylor was he was ready to go. And then Peter Dutton said, uh, "No, we're not going to that." That's just silly, isn't it? Well, I think I, I, I agree with them voting no on the climate change uh, legislation. Well, you can't. I, think- I mean, I, my point is, they haven't even looked at the bill. I mean, if you haven't even looked at the bill, you're just going to say no. I mean, that's part of the problem with with uh, the perceptions around the Liberal Party at the moment. But moving on to the summit, why would they? Why would they count themselves out of that? Oh, I'd probably go. Yeah. Hey? Of course yeah, I mean, you would. If, if, you know, if I were Peter, if I were terrific Peter lunches, Dutton, I, great I, dinners I would at night. Turn up. 
like, like I say, this is not the foolishness that was the Rudd uh, summit. Mm. Um, there are no actors, there are no lovies involved, there are no people there just to swan around and look important. Um, it, it, with any luck, it might actually produce some, some workable outcomes. Well, uh, yesterday the uh, Sun-Herald reported that Immigration Minister Andrew Giles uh, is warning that Australia is at risk of losing skilled migrants to other countries such as Canada. Damn you, Canadians! You know, if it doesn't overhaul the migration program, uh, <coughs> the, uh, the Herald revealed last week that the government was looking at raising the migration cap from its current cap of 160 to between 160,000 and 180,000. That's not very big. Uh, is expected to land somewhere towards the lower end of that spectrum. So we're not looking uh, at a significant uh, increase in, in immigration, but we are looking at a significant increase in the skilled migration program. Well, the Australian migration program has been remarkably successful. Um, uh, it, it really is the envy of quite a few countries around the world, um, and indeed... Uh, support for Australia's migration amongst the Australian no. population is, is no. incredibly high by world standards. Most countries struggle mm. to get 40% support for the immigration program. Australia's consistently in the 60s and 70s. And that's because the features of Australia's migration program have been it's on young, skilled people who can contribute to the country. Um, uh, and... Um, it does need an overhaul. There are some weaknesses in it. There's a, um, a, a, um, a ticking bomb uh, in the um, uh, refugee program again. Um, uh, large, large numbers of unresolved cases in that regard. And we can talk about that another day. But the skilled mi migration program does need a reset. It does need a rejig uh, and, and to be made to work a bit better. Yes, look, there are a number of industry sectors that are just crying out for workers. I mean, the the, the uh, most highly publicised cases are farm workers, and that has essentially been addressed. And we're talking about, I guess, you know, the fruit pickers uh, at this stage and farm uh, and farm labourers generally. Uh, jobs that most Australians don't particularly want because they're very very hard. And so we have temporary visas, and 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 in uh, the uh, Albanese government has. Uh, has uh, reformed that process in an allowing um, uh, temporary uh, visa workers to come into the country and, uh, and, and send quite a lot more money home than they were allowed to do in the first instance. And they're actually being asked to bring their partners with them or they can do that as well to make that process a little bit easier. But that's just farming. And when we look at IT, when we look at a whole raft of industries... Hospitality is another one. There are serious skill shortages there. Um, so we really do need to boost that skilled migration program, skilled migration numbers. Well, there's a number of things we need to fix. The skilled pro program is part of it. Um, a lot of the farm work and, um, and um, uh, where else are there, are there gaps today? Um, uh, restaurants and, and bars and et cetera are yeah. finding terrible trouble finding staff. You know, uh, even just to wash the dishes in places. Um, uh, and that's because a lot of that used to be filled by backpackers and students and all that sort of, yeah, those well, sort of people, right? You, you remember the famous Bat and Ball Hotel, Jack, uh, where I gather, uh, I gather fairly frequently, and, and that's a pub that relies essentially on, uh, on backpacker workers. Um, uh, 
providing the, the, the meat and drink uh, to the patrons and they've had to close on a few occasions or, or not be available to our luncheon parties because they just can't get the staff at the moment. Yeah, and and and, and students as well. You know, um, foreign students yes. who are over here working um, fulfilled a lot of those jobs. Now, um, uh, part of the consequences of the pandemic is that we don't get backpackers and we don't get the same number of foreign students. Um, and there's a lack of a little bit of a lack of trust in um, in Australia as a place to go because. They saw what happened with closed borders and people not be able to get in or get out, yeah. um, uh, and that's going to—that's some trust that's going to have to be rebuilt. Indeed, that's a very, very good point, Jack. That that, that, that our closed borders had left a lot of people stranded, uh, and and a lot of other people who were Australian citizens couldn't come back. You remember the Indian yes. furore uh, when we had uh, people going to India to. Uh, uh, to visit relatives and so forth, Australian residents, Australian citizens, and uh, being prohibited from their return because of an outbreak of Delta, I believe, in India. Yeah. To be fair, Jack, um, uh, I would say that just going back to the Morrison situation again, um, Morrison's mistake in appointing himself to these ministries, um, history will tell us that wasn't the only terrible error made during the COVID situation in Australia. There were plenty of other awful things that governments got wrong. I suspect that's right, but but I, I maintain a view, and I think it's a view that you hold too, that we got most of it right, uh, and, and, and it's easy, it's a lot easier uh, in the review mirror. Yep, uh, of course it is. Uh, when you know, well, well, you know, since we had Omicron, it wasn't so bad, and, and you know, and, and, and those sorts of things. I think we opened up as quickly as we could. The Australian people embraced uh, the COVID vaccination, very, very high uptake, and uh, and we got on with things uh, slowly but surely uh, once that was done. But in that first but, year... But there I were think, plenty of mistakes. There were oh, plenty yeah, of mistakes, but, and but Morrison's that, weren't the only ones. In that first year... Really, from from March 2020, when when Morrison became the health minister with Greg Hunt, to about March 2021, well, a little bit less, um, but certainly up until Christmas of 2020, there were no vaccines. You know that that's the thing. So we spent a long time in that, <clears throat> you know, almost a year in that period without vaccines, without vaccine protection, and really no no uh, no great way of working our way through it, like the rest of the world. Um, all right, now we're going to move to sport because there was a lot happening. Uh, a crippling, emotionally crippling uh, game uh, yesterday at the MCG in front of, I think, about 87,000. I was a bit surprised. I thought they'd get more. Um, and the Blues got beaten by a point, a solitary point, and got turfed out of the finals. In the final eight for rounds, one to 22, and when it came to round 23, bundled out. Uh, after a one-point loss to the Magpies, Carlton Hearts are broken. And the playing group, <coughs> we can talk about how they should have put Collingwood away. They certainly had every opportunity to do so. Uh, and and they'd won, uh, won, won the statistics that count throughout the day, um, uh, but only managed to kick a couple of goals in three quarters of footy. Uh, all of that aside... When they walk off the ground and now they go, and I'd, I'd suggest their mad Monday might be a little bit subdued. How do they come back from this mentally? Oh, I don't think that's a big, big problem, really. You don't think so? 
No, no, no. no. Look, so what um, happens when but, what happens when they're when they when when they're a point ahead? When they're a point ahead uh, with five minutes to go in round one next year, or round two, or round three. Well, they're just going to have to practice what you do in a tight finish better, um, uh, you know. And and they're going to look back at the whole season and say, well, look, last year, what did they finish last year? Thirteenth or something? Thirteenth, yeah. And they had eight wins, and they had eight wins, and at no stage were they in the top top eight um, last year, as far, as far as I can recall. Um, uh, I think about tenth might have been as high no, as they, they got. had a they had a poor start. I don't think they were ever in the final. Uh, ever in the eight at, at any no. point. So they were, and, and they they never at any, no stage last year did they look like a premiership contender. This year, that what they've gone from what eight wins to twelve wins. Um, uh, they've uh, for, for a fair bit of the year they look like they were a, a, perhaps even a top four chance, um, uh, and they've ended up. Uh, what in as Michael Voss said, as a seven to ten side, which is not what we want to be. Um, but that's a hell of a lot better than being a, a never, never were a contender thirteenth. So they've made a big, big improvement from twenty twenty one to twenty twenty two. Yes. Not only do they have twelve wins, but just I just had a quick flick through it uh, this morning, uh, and on that, out of that twelve wins, they had wins over Richmond, the Bulldogs, Port, and Sydney, which all of which I thought were excellent wins. Yes, um, well, that's just it. Um, I mean, it, it was a could have been sort of. Uh, it was a could have been sort of sh- show. I mean, had they beaten Melbourne the week before? Yeah, had they had they beaten Melbourne the week before, and then Collingwood yesterday, they would have beaten virtually every side at least once in in the final eight, with the, with the exception of Geelong. So yeah, it's a it's a could have been it's a could have been sort of sort of a year for them. Uh, have emerged. Uh, there's a lot of upside in that list. In that it really is a pretty stable list that they need to make a few additions to, but they don't need to be wholesale changes. Uh, and um, and uh, you'd expect them. You know, pain will will drive them on, uh, and and, uh, and be a, be better at locking down those close close games uh, in future. Uh, and there are ways you can coach around that, of course. Um, uh, also, Jack, and I say this with gritted teeth, of course, the pies—they're just never out of a game, are they? For all of the all the coaching you do about how to win close games, all of the. Um, um, uh, the practice you do about it, where you pretend you're you're in that situation and you work out what you're going to do and how you should do it, and you do it over and over again to try and get it right. There's no better practice than actually doing it. And they've had what eleven or twelve close yeah, games this year, and one eleven of them. I think um, I, I think their percentage is 106 with uh, what 15 wins. Yeah. Um, and so, so they've won some very very narrow games, and and once you get a taste for it, you always think, well, we can do this. Yeah, first of all, you get the belief that you can do it. Uh, secondly, you, you get your techniques right. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a big difference between practising this at Princess Park on a Thursday night and actually practising it in front of 80,000 people at the MCG with everyone roaring at you. Um, that's much, much, much better <laughs> match practice than, uh, than the Thursday night at Princess Park. And they've gotten very good at it. They play those last minutes very, very well. Uh, and I think we said this uh, in our other 
uh, other program around the world that that, uh, that that both sides will have benefited from that big game. It was like a final. It more or less was. Certainly was for the Blues oh, an even, elimination even, final. Even even better than a final because really the crowd. It, it, when when the finals come around, there's all sorts of people who go to the games, right? All, all go to the games. That was a, a crowd of eighty odd eighty. 85, 87,000 people, yeah. uh, thousand people, and they were pretty much just Collingwood and Carlton people there. So the noise mm. was enormous. Oh well, look, you know, Carlton have got eighty thousand members. I think Collingwood have got the best part of a hundred. So there would have been a lot of people who couldn't go. Uh, just and that's just you know paying members, um, both huge clubs and uh, long histories. Uh, bad luck for the Blues and the Pies go on to play Geelong. Uh, in a fortnight's time, uh, Richmond will play. Who are they playing? Are they playing Frio. Oh no, are they uh, playing Brisbane? I can't uh, you know, uh, Frio got the Bulldogs, and uh, yes, and yeah. and the Swans and the Mel- and Melbourne face off. So all good games. Um, yeah, no, it, was, it was excellent football, and you've got to say both clubs come out of that yesterday as uh, um, uh, in a in a better position, really. Yeah, because they, oh, it's, because, it's, because they got a they got a chance to go there and do that in front of a big crowd. Players grow a leg doing that. It's it's like ten games of experience rolled into one. It um, is now. Look, uh, one club not going well had a shocking week. Uh, Essendon, the Essendon Footy Club. We did address a little bit of this last week. Uh, the uh, the coach Ben Rutten has been sacked after I thought. Uh, Essendon had a, gave a pretty good account of themselves in the first half against Richmond, playing a better side in better form. Um, but uh, but he was sacked, and uh, now Essendon um, uh, Essendon have to basically they're trying to rebuild their football department without rebuilding their club, and that's that's the problem for me. In, in the former Age journalist, uh, footy journalist Rowan Connolly. Said this morning, it's time to blow the joint up and start again, Jack. Can't blow up Windy Hill; they're all out of Tullamarine now. He he is a, uh, of course, an Essendon tragic, Rowan Connolly. Is he? He, 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 used, he, he used to, he used to catch the train across uh, uh, from. I think he grew up in the eastern suburbs somewhere. He used to catch the train across to Windy Hill. You know, from you know, as soon as he was old enough to catch a train on his own. Um, <laughs> yeah, we all we've all been there. We've all been there. I used to pop along to Victoria Park when Carlton played Collingwood yeah. there. And rather appalling circumstances compared to the luxury uh, football fans have today. Um, but, yeah, it, it, that's that's the problem that Essendon seem to be making. They have uh, rehired their CEO. They rehired their CEO two weeks before they announced an internal review uh, rehired him, recontracted him for I think three years. That's uh, Xavier Campbell, uh, and uh, they've got a new president now, a, a member who's come from within the board, uh, uh, and and, uh, and he's leading leading the troop. But it, it seems like the focus is all on the list, all on the footy management, all on the coach. Uh, well, uh, Rowan Connolly's podcast uh, partner, uh, Robert Shaw, who uh, was an Essendon uh, footballer and uh, coached, I think he coached Adelaide as well. Coached Adelaide, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, he got it right last week when he said, you actually need five key appointments to get right, mm. um, to get to fix this. You've got to have the president, the CEO, the list manager, the football manager and the coach um, yeah. all, um, all on board the same boat together. 
I'd suggest uh, a North Melbourne signing of uh, Hawthorne Premiership coach, multiple Premiership coach, Alistair Clarkson, is a good move, but they've got still got some work to do there, Jack. If we they think do. about those five appointments, I'd suggest that the CEO of the club, uh, who didn't seem to know a lot about the uh, didn't seem to know a lot about the uh, hiring of the coach, might uh, might just be uh, giving his marching orders at some point yeah, over the next couple of weeks. He might be looking for something new to do. Something I've, got new. To say, I've got to say, I don't think Sheeds is helping the situation much out at Essendon. Um, well, neither is Matthew Lloyd. And, and nor is Matthew Lloyd. That's true. And th- th- this is the problem with clubs who have been big and successful, um, is that you get all of these former greats of the club um, uh, who put their war in and, and you know... Um, and can make an ordinary situation a bit worse. Sheeds never really trusted the admin of the club, and for good reason, because some of them were working, trying to get him out from the moment he walked. Oh yeah, it wasn't didn't take long, did it? You know, he, he just survived just, for about twenty years as coach. He did by just he, keeping he, those people at bay. He did. He used to have a strange thing. He did. Um, uh, my boss in the. Um, or in the, in the 84, 85 sort of era, um, liked to go. Um, uh, he was a, a, a senior partner in, in the law firm. He, he liked to take me for lunch round to the cafe at the Hilton Hotel there near the MCG. Um, and uh, a nice cafe, you get, you get, a, get, a, get, a, get an excellent club sandwich. Um, and Sheeds was nearly always in there because he used that cafe as his office. Um, and he'd only go out to Windy Hill for training. And the reason he used that for his office was because he could talk to people without the admin knowing who the hell he was talking to and what he was talking about. So he he, he survived with a distrust. But, of course, that, that method doesn't work these days when no. you've got all full-time uh, 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 people working for you as players. So now you, you've actually got to get all five of those positions right. You can't just do it on your own. Yeah. Fair enough. Now, over the NRL, Jack, uh, if you've watched any of the games, uh, well, there were a couple of close ones. Uh, Panthers beat Rabbitohs by four, and Knights v Raiders uh, was 22-28. Um, um, and I think uh, I think also, uh, 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 oh, yeah, no, the Raiders, Raiders come away with a narrow win, but the rest of them were absolute beltings, Jack. The Roosters beat the Tigers 72-6. Sharks beat... Uh, the uh, uh, the Eagles forty six, uh, Cowboys beat the Warriors forty eight four. Storm beat the Broncos sixty twelve. The Eels beat the Bulldogs forty two six. That tells me the season's too long, and there is a great disparity between the top eight and the bottom eight. Well, uh, it looked it, it it looks a bit like some of the teams who put the queue in the rack a bit early. Seventy two six, barely enough time in the eighty minutes to score that many points, Jack. Um, yeah, <coughs> roosters are coming good at the right end, <clears throat> and I tell you what, if you if you turn up against a storm and you're not ready to go, you will get smashed. Uh, Eels turning into a bit of form. Warriors was a bit of a shock. I mean, the, the Cowboys are very good, and that narrow victory where the Panthers beat the Rabbitohs—that's a sign that uh, those are two very good side. Panthers have been the best side in their NRL all season, and. Uh, 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 very uh, strong uh, uh, favourites to win the premiership again. Um, in the cricket, Jack, um, I just wanted to say I watched my very first game of the hundred, which is 
the uh, the uh, county cricket's answer to the big bash. Uh, the hundred is a hundred balls of cricket, 20, uh, 20 overs of five ball uh, per over uh, is is played. And I watched. I think it was the Southern something or others. Uh, had uh, Vince was their captain uh, up against the uh, Manchester. Oh, can't remember what they called themselves. Uh, either very silly names, uh, and that's Josh Butler was the captain of that side. Uh, Butler came out, spanked the ball to all parts, uh, and uh, and along came um, uh, uh, the West Indian. I'm just trying to think of his name, and he belted the ball all around too. So they got a very big score in their in their hundred balls. I think about 180, 190, and and along came the other side, and it was very clear from probably about over four, they lost a couple of quick wickets that they were never going to get the runs, and it just was boring to watch. I got to tell you, now, I reckon this is the this is the problem with a lot of T Twenty stuff. If if there you have a one sided first innings, uh, the, the the second innings virtually unwatchable. Yeah, well, I've, we, my mates and I tend to watch a bit of the T20 when it's on here over the Aussie summer. You know, if, we, if we're just gathering for a, an early January um, a, a beverage of, a, of an evening, we'll, we'll, we'll flip it on the on, on the on the pub telly. Uh, but no one watches it unless there's a good run chase, and then we only watch the last five or six overs. And then the, yeah, it's got to say it's a bit of wallpaper, particularly when you do get those uneven contests where the side either. Uh, uh, makes a big score that's going to be very difficult to chase down, or indeed uh, they get blown away for uh, a fairly, a fairly, uh, <coughs> a fairly small, uh, small, fairly small total. It makes the uh, second innings pretty boring um, to watch. Now, Jack, I didn't want to spring this on you, uh, and I'm sorry if it seems that way, but we have a letter from. Uh, a very it's a note and I think we might sort of put it aside for a more general discussion uh, next week but this is from Sanchez Lopez and I believe that's an alias on Twitter I think we can safely say that it is but he's a, a fellow that I know well and uh, and he um, has uh, you know uh, 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 pol- politically engaged and he's uh, uh, asked the question uh <clears throat> Uh, he's asked the question, sorry, I'll just get to it. Uh, he's asked the question, what does modern conservatism actually seek to conserve? Um, you don't have a quick uh, two-sentence two answer for us, Jack. What, what's what's conservatism, conservatism all about these days? Well, I'm not sure about that. Um, uh, I, <laughs> I don't have much to do with people who consider themselves conservatives. Um, well, a uh, lot of people do, and they're clearly not. That's the problem. I mean, uh, conservatism has sort of found itself as a sort of, you know, in its expression, its expressions in media is basically a um, a form of um, a reactionary style uh, style approaches to politics. Um, well, I think this has happened right across the political spectrum. I think the the old left right divisions no longer work. Um, uh, and you know the left are now more properly styled as progressives, and and no one's quite sure what they what they want to do either. Uh, so I think it's a it's a, it's a, it's an across the spectrum problem. Well, I might just 
not just say that there's actually nothing wrong with conservatism as it stands if we think of sort of 19th and early 20th century conservatism. And, and it's a it's a style, an approach to government that says uh, change that's not organic should not be responded to. I mean, that basically legislative change is not required unless it is in a response to organic change throughout the society. I mean, it's a, I don't approve of it, but I mean, I, I, mean, I don't approve of it, but it's not for me, but it's actually a legitimate... Uh, form of uh, political expression. But uh, when I look at conservatism today, let's look at the Liberal Party ranks or indeed conservative media, and, and you say, wait a minute, these guys aren't conservative? Not by that, not by the definition I just gave you. Well, well I, I would say that's true of both both the major political parties in Australia. That um, I don't know what, you know, I, I look at the Liberal Party, not sure what it stands for. I look at the Labor Party, same thing, not sure what it stands for. Yeah, well, that, look, it was always a knock on the Labor Party when they've, you know, been their long time out of government since the Gillard Road years. Is well, who does it represent? Hmm. Uh, is it just represent Labor with a U? Um, you know, is it is it going to represent, um, um, you know, the, the middle classes? Uh, working out in the suburbs, paying off their mortgages, all that sort of stuff. And in the end, it sort of has to do those sorts of things. Or, or is it going to be a progressive-style government and and basically, you know, sort of argue with the Greens on who can be more progressive? What um, was the quote from uh, from Kim Beasley Senior? When I joined the Labor Party, um, it re- represented the cream of the working class um, and sadly, it now represents now represents the dregs of the middle class. <laughs> yeah, that was that was hurtful. But I do, yeah, this is a very famous quote. When I look to the right, though, Jack, I I, I, I see, you know we, we just looked at a prime minister, Scott Morrison, a former prime minister who would have claims to be a, a conservative, and there he was, snaffling um, snaffling ministerial appointments, uh, self appointments, uh, and trying to run it's basically a government of one. Um, um, and and we see this across the board, you know. Um, we do see this, you know, where so-called conservative pundits and commentators, the last thing is that they're conservative, they're actually reactionary, you know. Um, I, I think it's a good discussion for another time. Thank you, Sanchez. Uh, I think we might even put this aside for one of our more extended conversations and we'll do a little bit of work and come up with some examples where some of our conservative commentary might be seen as being genuine conservatives while others clearly are not. Um, <clears throat> so we'll have a bit of a look at that and we won't, we, won't, uh, we won't spare those on the left either, Jack. What do you reckon? No, well, no, it's just, I, I think it's a... I just don't think that the old left-right... Divisions um, the, mean anything mean anything much? No, worthwhile. The, the, well, I don't think a linear expression of ideology is very helpful these days. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I just I just don't think that that's the way it goes. And in government, of course, I would prefer someone. This is a personal view. I prefer someone of a progressive bent, but having the capacity to be flexible and responding uh, to conditions as they arise. Mm. All right. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jack. We just want to say to our uh, to our listeners that we welcome your comments, and we'd love to sort of pick up on various debates, and various discussions about things that you might want to talk about. Um, and so, in that event, please drop us a line at the conditional release program at gmail.com or you can hit me up on Twitter as Sanchez, the mysterious Sanchez Lopez, did. Um, 
uh, and uh, and we can kick off a discussion. Uh, and we get, we're getting some very good feedback at the moment. We really enjoy it. Um, and uh, we like to raise these sorts of things as we go through the program. Uh, and I also remind listeners, if you are enjoying our podcast, uh, give us a, a give us a, a decent review on your podcast app and spread the word, whether it be it on Twitter, be it on Facebook or whatever social media uh, forum you uh, that you like. Uh, give us a bit of a give us a bit of a rev up if you like. We would always like additional listeners as we go forward, mate. Enjoy the heat today in Hong Kong. Um, you might even pop on the white shorts at some point, mate. Play away. Uh, look, I'll, I'll, I'll get some exercise later in the day. I'll raise a, a, a very decent sweat, I can tell you, a, a large chap like me. Uh, when he gets outside and to exercise, I can fill a T-shirt in no time at all. Um, and after that, I'll probably look, look yeah, you'll, need to ref- you'll need to uh, You'll need to replenish I'll, 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 I'll be looking for a cold Asahi after that. Excellent work, mate. Well done. Thank you very much for your coming along and thank you, listeners, and we'll see you next time. Cheers, mate.